Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, this was a legendary interview. Who did we talk to? <laughs> we talked to Mark Cuban. Yeah, Mark Cuban, the guy on uh, Shark Tank, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, the guy that is making a ton of noise about his tinkering, his experimenting with DeFi, uh, the guy that is super, super bullish NFTs. I, I, My biggest takeaway after talking with Mark Ryan is, damn, it makes sense as to why this guy is a billionaire. The guy puts in the effort. The guy puts in the research. He plays with things himself, so he knows what it's like because he is in the weeds. Uh, really smart guy. Just overall super impressed by Mark. And man, this was a, an absolutely fantastic, really fun interview that we had with him. David, he schooled us on some uh, ERC standards here, right? During the during the conversation on something like, like I mean, he is dug right in. He's dug in deep and he's got his arms wrapped around what this DeFi thing is and what these NFT things are. And uh, like, I was so impressed with the level of knowledge he was able to go with us in this conversation. Yeah, and I think this moments like this where we really find uh, mainstream appeal with the masses, right? Like Mark, Mark Cuban, he's, his job is to sort through the, the gamut of investable opportunities and uh, pinpoint the good ones, right? Like he has a TV show based on this. Uh, <laughs> and the fact that he uh, is coming, he, I, and I'm pretty sure we can definitely credit the world of NFTs to bringing Mark Cuban in. Like he likes DeFi, he sees the value of DeFi, but I think he has more energy about NFTs than he does DeFi. And I, that's definitely one of my biggest takeaways is, there's definitely like a, a whole class of people that aren't going to care about crypto, aren't going to care about DeFi. Maybe they'll use it, but they won't care about it in the same way that you and I do. But they do care about NFTs and they love digital art and it makes sense to them immediately. Uh, and I think that's just going to, I think Mark Cuban is just indicative of so many other people that will follow him down that path. Yep. What more can we say, guys? I think we have to get right into the interview. One last thing before we do, of course, we've got the Lattice. It is now in stock. This is the ultimate way to secure your crypto. David is showing it on screen. If you're listening to the podcast, you can't see this, but the killer feature of the Lattice hardware wallet is that it has a big screen so you can see your transactions before you send it. So they are back in stock. Link in the show notes. David, we did one last thing that's special, which is we had that debrief on Clubhouse today. So mm -hmm. Bankless Premium members will get access to the debrief, of course, on the Bankless Premium feed. But that was a lot of fun. We hosted an after party in Clubhouse and we recorded our thoughts on this Mark Cuban episode. So you guys can catch it that way. And I think we're going to be doing more with Clubhouse. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I, what I love about technology these days is, you know, Bankless is finding ways to you know, monetize ourselves. We have the debrief for premium subscribers, but you can go listen to me and Ryan record the debrief on Clubhouse in a public fashion, right? So if you really want that Bankless content, it's available to you. You just got to go get it. So follow Ryan and I on Twitter, Ryan Sean Adams, or excuse me, on Clubhouse, Ryan Sean Adams, date, uh, Trustless Date. Uh, and join us on Clubhouse, right? Like this is a, a new medium for us. I think there's a lot of opportunities here and this is going to be pretty fun. Well, the bottom line is we want to get the bankless message across all platforms. So we will go and do this. This was such a high energy interview. You guys, Mark Cuban is such an awesome guest to have on. He really made it special. It was a ton of fun. 
We should go ahead and get right into that interview, but first we're going to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Guys, we've entered a bull market. Now is the time to start building your crypto empire and you should do it on Gemini. You already know Gemini is the world's most trusted crypto exchange, but now you can do even more than trade. You can earn. You can take one of your crypto assets and park it in an interest earning Gemini account where you can get up to 7.4% annualized. There's nothing more satisfying than earning passive income on an asset that you're already bullish on. This is a crypto native superpower. You know what's coming soon too? A Gemini crypto credit card. Yep, that's a credit card, not a debit card. It gives you rewards and hard money crypto assets, not something inflationary like airline miles or hotel points. It gives you up to 3% cash back in crypto. The card is coming in Q2, but you should get on the waiting list right now and we'll include a link. See what I mean? This is more than just trading. Gemini is your bridge to crypto for the bull market. Open a free account in less than three minutes at Gemini.com slash go bankless. Get $15 in Bitcoin after you trade your first $100. That's Gemini.com slash go bankless. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you, all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. Mark Cuban, you need no introduction to the bankless community or really any community. Um, <laughs> you are Mark Cuban, the DeFi bull, I think now, yeah. at least that's how crypto Twitter is seeing you these days. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How y'all doing? Good, man. It is awesome Good. to have you on bankless. I, like Dave and I are so psyched about this. Your time is super valuable. We want to get right to the goods. Can we sure. start with this question? You weren't bullish on DeFi before. At least that's our general sense. Why are you now bullish on, on or you weren't bullish on Bitcoin before, right. rather, but why are you so bullish on DeFi now? What's okay. kind of changed for you? So let's, let's go through it. So when Bitcoin first started really becoming popular in the early days, let's put aside 2009, 10, 11, 12, right? Um, you know, I was, I was very familiar with it, very familiar with blockchain, but the original um, presentation or narrative, if you will, was that it was a, a currency. Right, that it was going to be used as a currency by normal people in normal circumstances. And I, I just never saw that happening. To this day, I don't see it as being a replacement currency for the US dollar or for any sovereign nation for that matter. Is it a better way to transfer money? Yeah, of course, right? Is that, are there significant benefits to, um, to Bitcoin? Yeah, of course, but it's really evolved to being a store of value. For the longest time, store of value was not the, 
you know, was not the key to Bitcoin, right? There was going to be lightning and that was going to allow all these transactions to take place and yada, yada. And so that to me never got me excited because I, I still don't think that'll happen. But I've always thought it could be a store of value. I've always compared it to gold and, you know, it's, go it's what people will pay for. But what really changed is over the last year, um, as I started getting more into smart contracts in particular, and really understanding more about their capability and seeing the enhancements that had been made, that was the first thing that got me excited. What made me really blow up on it and really get fired up about it is when I went to mintable.app and minted my first NFT. And it wasn't so much just minting the process, but when I saw the royalties, right, that was the game changer. Because the challenge for all intellectual property, whether it's art, whether it's music, whether it's photography, whether it's a um, textbook, whether it's anything, is the rule of first sale, right? Once you sell it, everybody else has got the right to sell it, and you don't get a nickel from it. And this changes all of that. And the implications there and the applications are enormous. So that was the first thing that got me started with NFTs. Then I started digging in more on the DeFi stuff, because you can't miss you know, from this summer, right? I mean, DeFi was everywhere and all anybody talked about, it seemed like. And so I started digging in and there's a lot of hype, you know, a lot of BS going around and a lot of, you know, the yield farming thing and APY and, and token binging and all this kind of stuff. But what got me excited is really understanding that DeFi turned Bitcoin or Ethereum or even several other tokens into personal banking right? And friction-free personal banking. You know, with, with the money I have in some of my bank accounts, right? I still got to go to a banker and I still have to fill out paperwork and it's still a multi-day process. And that's ridiculous, right? Even, you know, even though I'm over collateralized and, and I have a big NVL in my personal accounts, right? And so, you know, then I started looking at it and realized that, okay, put aside the over collateralization. That's not really a limiting factor. Um, but I can borrow or anybody can borrow regardless of size in seconds. And it's the decentralization really working to turn crypto into a personal banking platform. And that to me is the most exciting um, aspect of DeFi. And then you start applying that to corporations and then you start extending um, NFTs and smart contracts in particular. And so you can mint anything, anything that's digital becomes a digital tokenizable um, asset that can be resold, all those things together. And it really is something to get excited about because not only can it change how people deal with their own personal assets and their own you know, borrowing and lending money, but also for companies, it can really allow them to monetize things they'd never been able to monetize before. So Mark, this sounds like you have uh, f fallen down the bankless rabbit hole, really this decentralized, <laughs> right? Like this, this is, this is what you are speaking our language, sir. Uh, and you're talking about these, the, the potential of these programmable assets, whether it's an NFT or whether it's, it's some sort of uh, programmable interest account, but uh, a lot of the, the, the people listening here don't remember the birth of the original internet, right? Like we've got like more generations in front of us for the kids listening. I want to know if you're feeling like internet vibes here, early internet vibes here. Is this like a, an yeah. internet of, of money, an internet of value? Is this like an internet 2.0 to you or is it something different? I, I, it's different, but it, there's a lot of similarities, right? So back in the day, um, 
people, you know, so everything was analog, right? It was physical in a lot of respects. And so people looked at the internet as a way to, to simplify things and centralize things and make them available to everybody, right? That was the whole value of the net. And then you started to see unique applications. It's like my, my company, AudioNet. You know, we took sporting events, we took radio stations um, back in late 94, early 1995, when people didn't even know what the internet was. And we said, you know what, just like we're doing now, literally, you know, when we started streaming, starting with audio and doing live audio stream um, like this in 1995, people were like, what's the point? You know, I'll just turn on my radio. I'll just turn on my TV, right? I'll just listen to, you know, my, I'll put in a CD in the CD player. It was like, why are you even doing this? I'm like, no, you don't get it. Bits are bits, right? They don't care where you put them or how, they just want to be used effectively, efficiently. And now we can send audio where people want, how people want, when they want them, right? And so, but there were limiting factors like bandwidth was a huge limiting factor. Fast forward to today, right? You know, back then everybody tried to digitize and internetize everything. Now with smart contracts, people and, and crypto and um, blockchain particular, people are looking for new applications everywhere. And it's hard to know what's right and what's wrong, what's going to work and what's not going to work. So we were able to make things work. Um, there were a lot of applications that ended up working, eBay, Amazon, et cetera. There were a lot that failed. And so we're in the same place right now. And back then, companies went public and everybody wanted to own stock in an internet company, even though they didn't understand it. Now, you know, there's tokens and applications and layer one, two, three, four, and people don't fully understand it, but they go hype and they go for the narratives and, and that's what makes it similar but underneath it all there are solid applications that impact the world and that's the important part i can't tell you who all the winners are going to be yet or who all the losers are going to be whether it's the nft space whether it's DeFi, whether it's smart um con whether it's blockchain and smart contract applications so there's a lot of spray and um, pray when it comes to buying tokens and dealing with this stuff. And that's what makes it really similar. People don't didn't fully understand then. We didn't know who all the winners were going to be then. There was a lot of, okay, I'll try a little bit of everything to see what works and see what sticks. And that's very similar to today. So Mark, we, the, there's a frequent uh, conversation in like the bankless world, in the Ethereum world, that like all these DeFi financial tools, as soon as you get over this like learning curve, the, the, the experience of using these tools is just an absolute treat. Like, like you said, we don't have to go into a bank. We can use these personal financial tools in the comfort of our own homes, and they're straight up more powerful tools. Um, and so like on a personal note, th these are all advantageous for us as individuals. Um, yet you, and, and notably you are on this, uh, this Shark Tank green screen right now, I like to invest in things. So how are you on ABC? Let me just add. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so like notably, there's like one half where like these are personal tools that can better our lives. But also, how are you thinking uh, on this from like the investor side? Like you, you said that it was really the, the ability for the resale ability of these NFTs to that offer commissions baked in via smart contracts. Like where does your investor hat turn into like turn when you when you think about this space? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of battles going on right now, you know, and there's a lot of people striving for the crown, if you will, you know, wondering what's going to happen with Ethereum and E2.0 and transactions per second. And there's a lot of hype around that. And, and so, you know, I'm trying to get my arms around what companies are going to be the survivors 
Um, what's going to happen with the industry for that matter? You know, is 2.0 really going to happen? Is it going to be, you know, is it going to work? What, what type of TPS is it going to hit? You know, you see what's happening with Binance, how much of that is narrative and hype and what's real. Um, you see a lot of liquidity chasing to try to create a story that, you know, this company has got all this NVL and they must be strong. And then, you, you know, people talk about the market cap of the tokens. And so there, and that's really not relevant to anything. That's just all narrative, just like there's narrative, you know, like price earnings ratio, price to earnings growth ratio, you know, those, you know, those are narratives that, that um, analysts use to sell stocks. And so there's a lot of narratives right now. So from an investing perspective, I try to say, take my same Shark Tank principles and normal investing um, principles. What are the good companies? Who are the smart people? You know, what are the applications that are going to change the game? And like I said, personal banking is, you know, really a big change, De you know, decentralizing what was centralized. Um, governance is a big game changer, but those are macro themes, right? And so you've still got to determine which companies are going to be the ones that actually create the technology that really makes it work. And when I say technology, you know, it could be a competitive blockchain, it could be a layer two add-on, it could be, you know, layer four, it could be whatever, you know, and now you see all the arguments, is it, is, you know, is this DEX really centralized or is it decentralized, right? Is this yield farming sustainable or is it not sustainable? And a lot of the shit is not sustainable. You know, when, when everybody is just liquidity chasing to, to try to, you know, build up their NVL and, and paying these astronomical rates and paying to be listed or at least hedging to be listed on, on an exchange. And there's so many games being played because everybody is chasing the same money, trying to find narratives to bring in new money. And that happens with new industries. That's not unusual, but from my investing perspective, to answer your question, I've got to separate the bullshit from what's real. Totally. And uh, very similar to the late 1990s and kind of the to the internet.com kind of bubble and bust. Um, we want to get back to talking about some of the, the areas in crypto that you're most interested in putting on your investment hat. But before we do, staying with kind of the macro picture here. So we've got uh, crypto as an internet 2.0. But you also said something super interesting in a podcast I was listening to recently, Mark, which is uh, DeFi is America 2.0, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, famously, America made some fantastic strides in the early internet, laid out some massive infrastructure, uh, created a home for Silicon Valley, and has really led the way on the internet revolution up to this point. Um, do you think that DeFi and crypto could be like an America 2.0? How important is it for politicians and Main Street to get their arms wrapped around how important this could be for, for the U.S. as a country? You know, Ryan, that, that's a really interesting question because the reality is, you know, the strongest plays and the players are not American, right? We talk a lot about it, but the biggest money doesn't come from here, you know, and the biggest, you know, day-to-day -day usage from everyday people is not happening here, right? It's happening elsewhere around the world, but a, a lot of the development, not most, not even the biggest is happening here, right? A lot of the biggest and the original stuff that's been going on for a while is, is happening in, in Asia. And, and so, you know, we have the opportunity to really have an impact, but we're not, we can't think, Americans like to think that we're always the biggest and best at everything, but we're not really in this particular case. And that can be concerning because if we don't, it's just like, look, most of the internet's in English, right? In terms of the governance. 
um, DNS, et cetera. Um, and so we've got to really hopefully be a leader in this. Now, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to discuss that. Does that mean selling half the gold in Fort Knox and, and buying a, a basket of, of, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and maybe some others? I would be all for that because I think gold is useless, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> gold, gold bugs will tell you that, well, it has intrinsic value. It has this much intrinsic value for manufacturing applications and all that jewelry usage. There's no law. There's, there's no law of physics that says gold jewelry is more valuable than any other metal being, you know, creating a jewelry or for plastics and jewelry for that matter, right? That's just a narrative that we've all accepted. Hey, gold is better, gold band, gold jewelry, whatever. You know, and, and so every store of value has a story, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or gold. And so if we're gonna have a store of value that at least is more, more useful, I'd rather have Bitcoin and Ethereum in Fort Knox than I would gold. Um, but a lot of that is just, you know, we need as a country to start recognizing that crypto is real. And two, it makes better business sense as a country than it does for a lot of, a lot of other applications. And I'll give you an example. You know, you, if we created our own USDC, right, issued by the treasury, we lose money on every penny minted. We lose money on every nickel, dime, and maybe even quarter minted. We lose money on dollars and having to recycle them right? Um, it's bad business. And now with the pandemic, where um, if, you, if you have to go into a store, if you still go into a store, and you have to use cash, and you get change back, or you get dollars back, your first thought is, should I even touch that thing, right? You know, and, and so with trying to get to a touchless society for, for economics, USDC issued by the Treasury makes perfect sense. And so being a leader there, and I think hopefully we'll, we'll have conversations with politicians and leaders in government to, to convey to them that 99% of transactions are already digital, right? We're, we already have a USDC. It just doesn't get down to the consumer or retail level. We just don't call it that, right? When I, when I do a wire transfer, it's in dollars, but it's all digital. No one's you know, printing anything out, you know, hopefully to confirm it until after the transaction. And then that therein lies the rub because all the centralized interests, government, but even more so the big banks, um, they have a vested interest in not seeing this happen, at least the way things are set up right now. And so that's gonna be the battle. Yeah, so it's exactly what you said, right? So, and we didn't have these types of battles in the early '90s with the internet. So, here, here's part of my worry, Mark, is we did. that we did. we did. Okay, well, tell us about that because yeah, my worry right now is is the politicians don't get this, right? There's a few people in Congress who sort of are starting to wrap their heads around um, crypto. There's maybe Andrew Yang who's who's talking about it a little bit, like in little pockets. But it felt like in the '90s. Are you kidding me? I went to see senators and tried to explain it to them. Yeah, what do they say? No clue whatsoever. Um, you know, are we doing anything to stop it? Kinda, you know, whether it was copyright laws, you know, whether it was um, dealing with bandwidth and dealing with, I mean, because remember back in the 90s, you had a 56K modem and the biggest inhibitor to the internet was bandwidth. And so there were a lot of laws put in place in terms of being able for cable and telcos and satellites in order to how and where and when they could build the restrictions, communities set their own restrictions. So you had multiple layers 
of problems in terms of just creating bandwidth. And then you had people investing in fiber because you needed to connect all these things. And so there, there were inhibitors there, but it was easier literally to install fiber underneath the ocean than it was fiber to the home, right? Or fiber to a business. Trying to get a DS3, 45 megabits, was expensive and it was a hassle and there were all these taxes associated with it. And so, I mean, it was, it was a clusterfuck back then too. And people didn't understand it. I, <laughs> you know, we, we used to have this thing on broadcast.com called the CD jukebox. And I remember, and basically prior to 1996, we could put up any CD. There was no copyright laws preventing it. Then the music industry got these copyright laws passed, the Digital Copyright Act. And so we'd have to go get permission. And I remember explaining this to Orrin Hatch, Senator Orrin Hatch from Utah, who was on the Judiciary Committee, trying to tell him that you had to be careful with copyright laws because it could really slow down the internet. And all he can think about was he had a CD of hymns or something. He wanted to know if he could sell my CD, you know, and how to <laughs> you know, sell his CD. I'm like, no, it's not CDs. Um, they just had no clue. And so it, it was very similar then. But, you know, people find where there's opportunity, smart people find workarounds and companies find workarounds and capital finds workarounds. And the same thing will happen here. You know, as Gen Z start voting more, younger millennials start, you know, becoming more aware because they're not even as aware, you know? Um, and so as they become more aware, then they'll make sure their politicians are more aware and smart capital will find ways to invest. And that's what's happening now. So you're optimistic that we'll be able to get over this regulatory oh, yeah, education no, hurdle. Yeah, because like the nineties. You know, there, there's no choice because you can work around them because it's decentralized. Look, if there's no USDC, that's not going to stop DeFi. The only thing that's going to screw up DeFi is the liquidity chase and the yield farming because, you know, somebody in the government is going to step up and say it's too good to be true. And let me just tell you why and show all the problems. Um, you know, and like I say to people who yield chase, you know, the risk doesn't leave the system. You just don't know. It's like a game of musical chairs. You just don't know when the music's going to stop. And so you've got to be really careful there in terms of yield farming. But, you know, this, now if you're sitting home, you're getting a stimulus check. I don't blame people from yield farming because it, it's actually smart as long as you can be agile. Um, but it's not a long term. It's not going to be valid long term. So, Mark, one thing we've been uh, super impressed with is um, your ability to go deep in DeFi. Like, so our biggest criticism on Bankless is that many of the investors you know, VCs, institutional investors, they don't actually use DeFi, right? So they're not informed investors. Imagine going and buying, uh, or like investing in Apple stock in, you know, 2008 without ever having used no, an iPhone. Let me give you a better example. So we'll go back to the 90s. So broadcast.com was going public in July of, of 1998. And we go on this thing called a roadshow. And a roadshow is where you make an, a, um, a presentation to investors. And we go, I mean, we even got to take the Concord to go to London and come back today. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But we would go into these presentations and we could see their eyes just glossing over. And there were never, rarely any questions. And the questions just showed that they had no clue what they were investing in. And then we go public. It's the biggest one-day jump in the history of the stock market at that time. Everybody placed their maximum order and the price just skyrocketed. But none of those people had a clue or understood the technology of what we were doing, none. 
And so it's, it's no different here. I mean, that's just the way it is. People are momentum investors in a lot of respects. That's what we say is like your edge can just be actually using DeFi protocols. Yeah. Have you gone in and, and, and deposited something in Aave and are earning some interest? You have an edge because 95% of the other investors haven't even gone that far. No, no clue whatsoever, right? Because, okay, so, you know, investing and working with some of these companies, I'm like, you got, you got to do me a favor. If I'm going to invest, here's what you got to do. You have, before you hit confirm, right, for that swap or whatever, deposit, whatever it may be, you need to put up the transaction fee versus the APY and how long it'll take you to earn back your transaction fee, right? Because people will see an API of 60% or 70% and invest $100 or $1,000 and have a gas fee because they do it the wrong time of 100 bucks right? And that's 10% immediately right off the top. And don't realize even if it's a 50% APY, that's an annual yield, right? And you got to hold it long enough to cover just to break even before you even think about it, right? And they don't do the math. And so I'm like, you got to save the little guy because otherwise, it, you know, if you don't take care of the little guy like that, it's going to backfire in the whole industry. And, you know, whether it's Ave um, or others, you, you don't see that, right? And that's going to create problems because you know, there's a lot of people year farming on a small level trying to figure it out and losing money, including me. I, you know, because when I, when I first learned it and I first did my first deposit and then um, did, did some yield farming where I deposited and I saw a high APY and I want to see what happened. And then I was like, yeah. And then I swapped it back out losing money thinking I'm getting this high yield, right? Well, well but that this, this is exactly right. Like you have to have skin in the game and you have to be willing to experiment and you have to have a few transactions where you're like, oh, that didn't go well. And yeah. like, here's why in order to level up and understand this stuff. So what is is that generally how you approach investing? And is that how you impro oh, approach DeFi? Like tell us how you learned DeFi and how you approach investing. Yeah, I just do it. Right. I mean, I'm teaching myself solidity right now. I'm taking solidity um, tutorials so I understand smart contracts better because it's important for me to be able to say, OK, this is what you can do with a smart contract. It's almost like artificial intelligence. Right. So everything AI is included in almost every investment. Crypto doesn't really talk about it, but, uh, you know, every traditional regular business company does. And so I'm taking you tutorials and AI. I'm learning the difference between GANs, you know, CNNs, reinforcement learning, all this stuff. I'm, you know, doing machine learning tutorials, you know, reading books, whatever, watching the videos. So I can learn because I got to know what's real and what's bullshit. And 99% of the deals that say they have AI or computer vision are bullshit. You know, th th they have one guy or one person who is there, you know, that went to MIT or Harvard that took a class in data science and, has done, you know, a three-layered neural network like I have, and that's it, right? And they're going to try to figure it out. AI is hard. Crypto is easy, relatively speaking, but you've got to learn. You've got to learn what it is in order to be able to make legitimate decisions. You know, it, VR, I've got a patent pending with a medical application for VR. I got, you know, a patent that was issued for computer vision for counting things from, uh, from the air on the ground. I mean, you know, I had help, but these are things, you know, over the years, just diving in. And what you learn very quickly about technology generally is once you get these fundamentals in place, it's not hard to add new things, right? De you know, DeFi is, is really straightforward um, if, if you just try it and you understand the principles behind it. But 
you know, you've got to understand finance to a certain extent. You've got to understand why people are chasing liquidity or why the DEXs are chasing liquidity and, and trying to offer these yields and why it's a game of musical chairs. But that just takes time and, and experience to do it. Mark, so you've been playing in these DeFi apps yourself, which is absolutely fantastic. Like Ryan said, you're already like leagues beyond the typical VC who doesn't actually play. And the fact that you're learning Solidity is insanely cool. Um, we talked about gas fees and gas fees are, they're pretty prohibitively expensive for a large part of the population. It's an unfortunate place that we find ourselves in where Ethereum has so much demand that everyone wants to use it, yet we haven't actually learned how to, how to scale it, right? There are L2 solutions on the way. They're just very nascent, not very mature. We, we do believe they're coming. There's been a ton of content that we produce on L2s. But one of my opinion, one of my questions that I have for you is like, do you think uh, the average person, like assuming that Ethereum scales, assuming that L2 does work, uh, do you think that the average person, like just you, me, just like the listeners here, are actually making these individual transactions, managing their own money, uh, playing with their own DeFi apps, putting their own money into Aave, putting their own money into MakerDAO? Or do you think there's going to be some sort of like... Uh, service providers, some sort of like centralized entities. Uh, like, how do you think? How do you think about the long term? So for every business ever, whether it's mm -hmm. a little company coming on Shark Tank or the biggest companies, customers take the path of least resistance. Period. End of story. We don't, you know, we don't want to have to think about it. Um, we put our money in a bank because we don't want to have to think about it, and we know FDIC insures it, and we feel it's safe, right? Better than under a mattress, hopefully. Um, and so, whichever company creates, look at Top Shots, right? Look, look what um, Flow has done with Top Shots. Their biggest thing wasn't, you know, creating the videos. The video moments aren't anything special. Their biggest thing wasn't a deal with the NBA. That helps, makes me some money. I'm glad, right? Um, the biggest thing was there's no wallet. You just put in your credit card. Everybody's been trained for decades. You just put in your credit card. You buy what you want. That is the key. You can talk about flow blockchain all you want, right? And, you know, you can talk about whether it's better or worse and, you know, who's going to develop on it or why. That's not the secret sauce. The secret sauce is the FinCEN side where there's no know your customer. There's no yeah, any of this other stuff. You just put in your credit card and you buy. And if the prices go up, you're happy. There's a two and a half percent. No, it's more than that now. Um, it's the, well, depending on the size of the transaction. But, you know, it's going to be a seven to ten dollar transaction fee. That's cool, too, because people are used to that because of shipping and credit card fees. And, you know, and that's a thought, right? There's no shipping fees, <laughs> you know, on, on NFTs and all that stuff. But you get my point, right? It's the path or least resistance to dealing with things. Look, you can't take your money off of Top Shots right now. You know, you can have something that just skyrockets in value. And, okay, you know, it looks good, you know, on your collection, but... It, you know, you can't really take it anywhere, you know, so there's a lot of limitations and it just goes shows even despite those limitations, the site being down, it's hard to buy a pack, you know, they're still working on getting out bots, all that kind of stuff. People still do it because it's exciting to collect and it's easy. And so DeFi right now is not super easy. It's not easy at all, right? Understanding pooling and swaps or exchanges, different people use different naming conventions right? Yield farming and pro what, what's really profitable. People see APY and they're, they're used to, you know, the concept of APY or APR because of their credit cards, right? And so the advanced users or people that just learn their way through it um, can get to it, right? But you don't see NVLs into the billions because of everyday people. 
right? There are big old players, and I know some of them now, that are just moving money around. And you can do it now because, you know, the, the exchanges of the world are able to hedge still. And, you know, there's still the liquidity chases because it's a zero-sum game. You know, you talk about similarities to the internet. I used to do deals with companies because they wanted traffic. And with broadcast.com, we got a ton of traffic and we invented these things called guaranteed click-throughs, right? So just like NVL is the, the metric for how successful you are, because that leads to market cap, right? So traffic was the currency back in the day. And so we would charge ex you know, obscene amounts for sending people traffic because they in turn use that as a metric to either go public, stay public, their stock price, whatever. It was legitimate traffic. It wasn't bot traffic or anything like that. It was legit, but we would charge the shit out of it. You know, and it's the same thing now. People are paying, overpaying for the metrics, the NVLs and everything. They're paying influencers who don't know shit about crypto to say, you know, come, you know, you know, just to jack up their TPS or jack, whatever the metric is, that they're using, their NVL, whatever it may be, their user numbers. And so you're seeing a lot of people gaming the system right now, and you've got to really be careful of that. And that hurts the ordinary user who doesn't see that bigger picture because it truly is a game of musical chairs. You know, if your yield that you're earning that you've committed to be locked in, whether it's, you know, 11 days on Ave or whatever, you know, or whatever it may be for whatever your lock is, um, I don't think that's a risk people fully understand. And you don't have the leverage to yank yourself out like other people do. Mark, I think David's going to get back to NFTs in a second, but I want to jump on something you said where, where it hurts the user, because I think it hurts the user in two ways, right? So um, it, it, it hurts the user, obviously, when they're buying into something uh, like a speculative type bubble. It hurts the users that way. But it also hurts, I think, the mainstream users who look at this whole crypto space and dismiss it as a bunch of speculation and nonsense and shenanigans and games. And they well, dismiss right. yeah. because they're partially right, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So it hurts them too because it shuts them out and they don't see the potential. Like, like I, you know, I, I do remember. I was, you know, old enough to to sort of remember this, uh, the the dot com bubble, and everyone said that like the internet is dead at that time after the bubble popped, like yeah. it would never come back, and they dismissed the technology because of the speculative bubble. So it hurts in two ways. This this kind of speculative nature of things. Yeah, but you know what? That kind of takes care of itself over time, right? Yeah. Because the people who are just buying traffic. Um, and don't have something sustainable underneath it, they're going to be gone. It's just a question of when. You know, you just hope enough um, individual um, players, you know, buyers, I don't want to necessarily call them investors. If you're looking for a 50% APY, you're not investing. You got to know that there's <laughs> that, right? You know, and there should be a disclaimer that, you know, every DEX has to list, right? Every front end has to list saying that, you know, your yield is being paid in the tokens of the people that you're locking with. And most likely it's going to take X number of days for you just to break even, you know, because if, if there was a break even metric, you know, for, you know, your yield versus your transaction versus the risk associated with the token you're getting, people are going to think twice and might not dive in. 
Mark, I want to I want to go back to the conversation of uh, uh, people using these things themselves rather than using somebody else to to be their proxy, right? Because there are some services in DeFi, some services on Ethereum that are very easy to obfuscate using a centralized service provider. But then there are other services, other things you can do in DeFi where it really would make sense. And specifically, where I think this is true would be NFTs, right? Like you people like NFTs because they like them, right? You can't you you can't outsource your own taste, right? So there are some things in this world where you actually do need to be the person you know with making the transaction buying like choosing the specific asset and like one of the reasons why why we call bankless bankless is because there are all of these platforms that can remove these intermediaries from right. from choices okay. in, in yeah. a bankless world right the bankless yep. thesis uh, and so I kind of want to get get your take on that because I, I know you love NFTs and I'm, I'm assuming you wouldn't trust anyone else other than yourself to make your NFT selections for you. Uh, so when you go and, and you look at NFTs and you are making those choices for yourself, like how do you look at NFTs? Like how do you evaluate these things, especially when they're so subjective? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there's a couple things there. If you, if you analogize it to the art world, right? There are um, advisories, like I'm not an art guy. There's no art in this house, you know, that I've bought. Um, <laughs> and there are advisors that come to me every now and then, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a consultant. I help, you know, wealthy people buy art. And I'm like, okay, good luck, you know? And so there, there are intermediaries that, that try to fill that role that understand the marketplace. Uh, you know, I know some people that know that this artist is really hot, right? This artist has got a following. And really what it comes down to is, and the exact same thing follow, applies to NFTs. It's not so much the subjective aspect of the art itself. It's more what kind of following does that artist have? Because that following is what creates the demand. Because you're right, there, there's, it's almost impossible to think that, <clears throat> that if you put up a picture that everybody's gonna feel the same way about it. Like you look at the Mona Lisa and you go, okay, Somebody thinks that's special. Not me, right? But it's the Mona Lisa. Okay, so everybody, you know, so you're, you're not going to get that commonality. You're right. It's very, very subjective. But what's not subjective and it's quantitative is the size of the following. And so, so when you look at um, CryptoPunks, um, when you look at some of the things that Hashmarks is doing and you look at people, right, they have huge followings. And that's what creates the value more because it becomes a community. It becomes something that creates a commonality. It's like being a fan of the Dallas Mavericks. You know, there's some people who are just, okay, you know, I hope the Mavs win. And then there are others like we lose a game and like me, right? And it's the end of the world. It feels like, you know, the world just came to an end with every loss and I can't sleep that night. And, you know, that's community and community creates value. And people in the NFT world, you always have to remember that. Community creates value for NFTs. And when you're evaluating them, you have to evaluate the size and the strength and the intensity of the community. Um, and so I don't, the only time I've bought NFTs as an investment per se, where I'm just gonna let them sit there um, was Bitcoin Origins because I thought it was cool. And I know those guys and I'm gonna do some stuff with them. Um, I did it one, oh my God. Um, Euler, um, oh, Euler Beats, the music one? Euler Beats, yeah, Euler Beats, mm -hmm. right? I bought two of those because to me, it was the most genius idea ever. And that, since I've talked, I've talked to those guys since at Trium. Um, but what was genius about it was it was generative and they did the bond curve 
and they did a 90% reserve, which means they created a floor for every item, right? So if you took a, a chance on it, then you know, as long as the prices are going up, you're not gonna, you're going to make money no matter what. And if the prices are going to go down, well, because the reserve is so high, at least it's not going to zero, right? There's some value there. And for them as a company being, you know, a shark, I'm like, it costs them nothing to the cost of mint. Their marginal cost is zero. And so, you know, their only mistake was setting a 90% reserve, you know, even though that made me buy more, you know. Um, and so, you know, the, the business side is interesting to me. But again, the community side is most important. But sometimes like the Euler Beats, when you just come up with an idea that I thought was just really differentiated and unique, that's cool, right? That is really cool to me. And that's why I invested in them. Yeah, man, there's so many directions I want to go in. I think the topic of audio NFTs is is hu a huge one that we are just now scratching the surface. But I want to go back to something you said where the community creates the value. And this is, this is a drum that we've been beating on the Bankless program for a while now where one of the cool things about all these DeFi apps and all these DeFi tools on Ethereum, they're money tools, they're value tools. What they do is they allow for cultural expression, right? And one of the reasons why I'm particularly so bullish on NFTs is that there can be one or many sets of NFTs for every single community out there, right? Like the NBA Top Shop is the the, MB, the NFTs for the NBA community, right? Like there's a, one of my favorite artists, musicians, RAC. He's got his own token, and it's like the community token for every sort yeah, of so culture. What do you think about? So are you talking about on on Audius or on Zora or? Uh, I think I think his specific token is is, is its own native ERC twenty token on the base chain of Ethereum. But the important thing about that is that he made he made a token and his community loves it. And it's a way for him, the artist, to engage directly with his yep. community, right? There's no intermediaries. He didn't have to ask permission to anyone. He made the token, and then the, the community is like, I like RAC. I like his music. And it's a way for them to engage. So yep. what's your, what, how, how does that land with you, like the, the one community, one NFT like connection? Yeah, I mean, look, there's, there's two things there, right? Just doing an NFT doesn't necessarily mean you want to create a token, right? Because a token carries with it a different set of responsibilities particularly if you try to do original sale to make money um, or to raise money, that, that creates a set of obligations. Like I say in Shark Tank, raising money is not an accomplishment, it's an obligation. The people that gave you that money want something back for it. Now you may give them back an NFT and that's fine, that's, that's a sale, that's not a, necessarily a money raise, um, but building community is everything to every company everywhere. I don't care what company you are or what you sell, you know, if your customers aren't, don't feel like a community, you're going to suffer at some level. And if you're an artist um, creating community and using Telegram and Discord and Twitter and wh wherever your customers want to be is great. The challenge in all of that is only the token. That's it. You know, because, again, that creates a different level of responsibility um, because if people come, if you're RC and people come to you for your music, just love your music love everything that you do as an artist, everything. But because they love you, they put their life savings in your RAC token. That's a different responsibility, you know? And it's, you know, I get, I've gotten asked so many times over the years, why don't I start a hedge fund? Why don't I start a fund? You know, why don't I do a SPAC, which is a really hot money raising thing right now, right? Because people are going to put their life savings in based on my name. And that's a huge motherfucking responsibility that I don't want. Right. Because like I said, 
you know, broadcast.com had the biggest IPO jump um, in, in stock market history at the time. And we ended up closing that day at like $63. But there was somebody who top ticked it at $72.50. And I was like, oh, shit, how am I going to have that person make sure they make money? And that kept me up at night and that kept me working hard. Um, but you got to have that attitude. Otherwise, people are going to lose. And it's like all these DEXs and all um, these liquidity chases and yield farming. Somebody's saying, you know what? Some of my customers might lose out on this, but fuck it. I can't do business like that. And that's the challenge. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, so um, this is what tends to happen during during bull, uh, bull runs is you start to get a bunch of short-termers who enter the space, right? So like, but the long-term projects that are playing long-term games, they're not going to screw over their community. You guys, there is so much left in this interview. We talk a ton more about NFTs and we also bring up the conversation of crypto monies, Bitcoin and Ether, and also the app layer of Ethereum. And we ask Mark where he thinks value will accrue in these systems. And then we bring up some of the biggest conversations going on in society these days, the wealth inequality conversation, the Robinhood GameStop debacle, deplatforming, and how Mark sees DeFi and Ethereum playing a role in the future of these conversations, in the future of these systems. This was such an awesome second half of this interview. Don't go anywhere, but we gotta take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. If you are looking for a product that connects your fiat bank account with DeFi tokens and products, you need to download the Dharma mobile app. Dharma is a non-custodial smart contract wallet and comes with a bridge that connects you right into your bank account. Dharma is the fastest and most efficient wallet between your fiat in your bank account and any token on Uniswap, or even any vault in Yearn. With Dharma, you can get over $25,000 per week into the DeFi universe, and you can do it non-custodially. If you or anyone you know is hot on DeFi and you're trying to get your money into a DeFi investment, Dharma is the place to go. Signing up and going through KYC is an absolute breeze. It took me just under three minutes. And after signing into my bank account via Plaid, I am now just one transaction away from any token that Uniswap has to offer. Go to www.dharma.io. That's D-H-A-R-M-A dot I-O. Download the Dharma app and get yourself unbanked today. If you want to live a bankless life, you've got to get yourself a Monolith DeFi Visa card. Monolith is a one-two punch. It's both an Ethereum smart contract wallet and a Visa card that lets you spend the money you hold in your Ethereum account anywhere Visa is accepted. This is super cool. You can swipe your card at the coffee shop, at the gas station, when you do, you're paying with crypto, all without a bank. This has been the crypto vision since day one, and it's here. Monolith also offers on-ramps for getting your fiat into the world of DeFi, so it's trivial to top up your Monolith card whenever you need to. You can top it up with ETH, DAI, or DeFi tokens. And because Monolith is native DeFi infrastructure, the money that you hold not only never touches a bank, but it retains its DeFi superpowers. So you can swap assets on Uniswap, you can earn yield in DeFi protocols. You've never had a Visa card like this before. Go to monolith.xyz now and sign up to get your Monolith card. That's monolith.xyz.
I want to get back to the NFTs because I think you have a unique, uh, I guess, a take on this, Mark, is like, it feels like we are in the very first stages of NFTs, right? Like Disney hasn't discovered NFTs. My God, like the biggest marketing uh, company in the world with massive communities hasn't discovered NFTs. Athletes have barely discovered it, right? Celebrities haven't discovered it. There are all of these communities outside of crypto. And what crypto provides uh, and Ethereum provides is this blank canvas, essentially. So it's like the internet, you know, anybody could spin up a website. Well, now anybody can create an NFT. How big could this get? And what what do you think we're gonna be seeing next? It's a hundred billion dollar industry, but probably not for 15, 20 years, right? No, no doubt about it because and put aside um, the art side of it and the music side of it. Look at it from a business side of it. Let's talk college textbooks, right? Literally, I'm checking the market caps of the biggest companies that create college textbooks and asking, you know, if they were under severely undervalued and like all companies now, they're overvalued to a certain extent um, because interest rates are so low. So I guess, you know, relative to interest rates are not overvalued, but relative to history, they are. Um, just looking to see, should we be looking at buying these um, college textbook companies? Because there's no good reason at all to have a physical college textbook. The only way, reason they do it is because that's the way they've always done it. But the new style college textbook company is going to use you know, the equivalent of an NFT, whatever they decide to call it. Because now with college textbooks, they lose the resale value. That's why they're overpriced so much, right? You know, kids buy, so many kids buy, you know, used textbooks like I did when I was in college um, because that's just smarter way to do it. Maybe you get some good notes in there too. And, and so, but now because you can get your royalties ongoing, right? Why wouldn't you do every college textbook as the equivalent of an NFT, whether you call it that or not, and then just issue it. You can charge less knowing you're going to get 25 or 30% of the resale value and make a shitload more money. You know, those are the things that are going to drive this NFT to a hundred billion dollar industry. It's not going to be artists because you're, you know, you're going to start getting into long tail. That's too long, right? It's like publishing a book. It's anybody can publish a book. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it in bookstores. If you work hard enough, that's not going to mean that there's a market for it and people are going to buy it. Anybody could publish music. It used to be really hard and expensive to publish a song that was, you know, well mixed and, and produced. Not anymore. You know, it takes nothing to produce a song. That doesn't mean anybody's going to buy it or listen to it. And so you're starting, you, you know, we're already starting to see that with NFTs, right? If you go on Minable or Rarible or OpenSea, you see a lot of stuff, even a lot of it that looks good, right? That is really interesting, but has no bids. And so the, the real jump is, I mean, we really haven't hit with music yet, so that'll jump. We really haven't hit with professional photographers, so that'll jump and grow the market. But like you mentioned- How about sports? Yeah, how about sports? sports, Yeah, we'll do everything from tickets to pictures to um, moments to everything and anything. We'll, you know, I've got a company, MBA Meme, um, that I'm part owner in. And all these memes, we're going, you know, once we get the rights, we're, we're going to make NFTs of them. And so that will bring in more users, but the holy grail of all this are the business applications. You know, if you think about the removing the friction of bankers, because every bank has got to touch it, you know, and you've got multiple layers of people who have got to approve. Businesses work that way in general. Think of payroll, think of college transcripts, high school transcripts, think of, you know, borrowing against receivables. Um, There's just so many applications 
And so, and they apply not just to DeFi, but to, to NFT um, technology as well. You know, so if I write, uh, if I do a presentation or if I give a speech um, and you guys are talking about going on Clubhouse, well, Clubhouse to me is the anti-NFT because it's ephemeral, right? There's nothing there to remove. To me, that's a mistake, right? I'm working with a, co a company called Fireside Chats. And, you know, so if, rather than having that after party on, um, on Clubhouse where it's just gone, right? You do it on, on Fireside and you're going to turn it into an NFT and you're going to price it at the equivalent of five bucks or 10 bucks, right? And when someone's done using it, you're going to have a 50% royalty and they can trade it. Maybe no one will buy it. Maybe no one will trade it, but it'll be there, right? That's the long tail that in aggregate for business applications that makes this a hundred billion dollar marketplace. I listened to this uh, fantastic Frank Zappa clip last night where he talked about the uniqueness of specifically live performances and the reason why bootlegged uh, video recordings of performances still go for t like extremely large sums of money is because the live performances only happened once, right? There right. was only one of them, right? And Look at the Grateful Dead, right? Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, I've been listening to the Grateful Dead for like weeks now. It's been been a it's been it's been a fun time. And so I want to go back to the the question of like musical NFTs, music NFTs, where you know we talked we talked about Euler Beats, which is like kind of like the first big music NFT, and it's it's programmatic, computer generated, less yep. less art, more computer, right? Like more algorithms. Um, right. and, but the the thesis is that's kind of just the start really, of the, yeah, the music is just secondary. It's really the first right. mass NFT, right? Mm. That's what it is. It's the first math NFT. And there'll be other things that are math generated that are unique. Maybe it's not visual, maybe it's something else, right? Maybe it's a calming pattern, I don't know, right? It could be like, there's one NFT that I'm thinking of putting up. So I have, long story short, I ended up creating um, this application in VR that just has these squares that float by, which allows your, if you're dizzy, it recalibrates your brain, your um, vestibular system in your eyes. And so it helps some people deal with dizziness and it's patent pending and all this, but it's all generative, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about putting it up as an NFT because it's just math effectively and it's calming based off the math. There's gonna be a whole industry of math-based you know, NFTs that just have an impact in their own way. Um, and so, it, it, you know, Euler Beast was just the first. This, this can go in any direction. Right. So like there's, there seems to be a fork in the road, right? There's the math-based NFTs and then there's like the, the music auditory NFTs that maybe a musician could be um, more, more resonant with. Where, where do you see, what do you see happening first? Because I'm particularly bullish on like audio and music and tracks, like specific songs based like tokens where, you know, you buy, you buy the NFT, you get the rights to the, to the audio. Where, where does your head go when you extrapolate audio-based NFTs into the future? Um, really depends on what is the standard 1155 um, for Ethereum for royalties. Um, 1155 and, and uh, 721s are the two NFT standards. Yeah, so the 1155 is the royalty side of it, right? I believe so. I think they can both be programmed, but I think look uh, at Mark Cuban spitting yeah. out EIPs, dude. This is crazy. <laughs> he, he's asking questions I can't answer. <laughs> <laughs> he knows more than us. The 721 is already in place, so that's a given, right? So that's basic royalties. And if I read it right, the 1155, because I'm also reading the stuff, I think it's whatever about burning Ethereum and the miners are arguing and all that kind of shit, right? Um, and so, um, but on the royalties, that'll drive the music implications, right? 
because being able to allocate royalties to the the whole publishing litany, right? The songwriter, the performer, the um, people who do the music, the musicians, all that kind of stuff. That's the hard part. It's the same with the movie, right? The executive producer, the producer, the actors, the writers, the this, the that. Like, you know, all the little cameos and, and um, acting shit that I've done, I'll get a royalty check from this episode of um, Entourage from, you know, a free screening in, in Korea. Um, and the, the, the royalty will be for $1.15. And they'll send me a check. I literally have a stack of checks that big from Entourage that are $2 or less. And I'm just saving them to auction them off on eBay <laughs> for charity, right? Where I <laughs> autograph them. Um, so you've got to solve the business side of the problem first. And smart contracts are a better way. And when the, the standard really becomes usable for the distribution of royalties, then you'll see the explosion because it's a better business um, solution. That's always the key. You always have to ask yourself, on one side, you think about the demand, and that's always important, right? More music, more people, more demand, right? But you got to think of the business side, and is this a better way? And fuck yes, it's a better way. It's not even close, but there's got to be standards because Ethereum right now has you know, got its scaling issues that hopefully go away with 2.0, and then there's all these other competitive blockchains, and you, you know, do they go there where you kind of control it? Will it be acceptable? All the normal questions, right? Um, but those have to be solved first. So what's exciting about all of this, and I don't think yet mainstream sees it, but we see it because we're here, is this is, Mark, this is like the birth of a new economy here, right? Like we're talking about all of these products, all of these cool things in the digital world that you can't get in the, in the physical, in the analog world, right? So this is the birth of a whole new decentralized finance, Ethereum, crypto economy here. What I want to find out, and I think what, what people listening want to find out too, is how you think about this space more specifically back to putting on your investor hat, right? So like your skin it's, in the game. It's really, really, really simple. Go. For individuals, is it the path of least resistance? Does it make your life better? Yes or no? That's it. On the business side, does it make you more productive, more competitive, and more profitable? That's it. And the answer is yes. Across the board. Yeah. Okay, so let, 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 can we talk about basically where you have skin in the game, what you're kind of betting on, right? And we don't have to get into specific projects, but I want to know like what layers, like Bitcoin, for instance, is that, is that we, we talked about that earlier. Is that something you like? Yeah, I've owned a bunch of Bitcoin for a long time, right? Despite what people think, right? People would send it to me when it wasn't worth much trying to convince me and I kept it. You know, I bought some along the way and I've kept it. I've never sold one Bitcoin or a fraction of a Bitcoin. It's extremely rare that people keep their Bitcoins that people send them to him. So, so congratulations for doing that. Yeah, I didn't, I mean, I didn't need the money. <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, same with Ethereum. And I got a bunch of shit coins that some of which I thought were shit coins that now are turning into real value because everything's trading up. Um, and I bought some more along the way. Um, and so on the token side, you know, that's not as big a play for me right now, even though in absolute terms, it's, it's a fair amount of money, even for me, right? Because I've accumulated over the years. Um, so, you know, I lose, when the price goes up, I make a lot of money. When the price goes down, I lose a lot of money, relatively speaking. Um, but I'm not, I'm not selling it, not changing it. Sometimes it's fun to trade in and out of some of the smaller tokens just to try to be right, but that's not really investing. That's just that, um, speculating. Now, in terms of investing, um, 
you know, there's a difference as an investor. I don't look at tokens as an investment other than, you know, you can look at maker because you get a percentage back, right? You can look at, you know, others where I've, I've done things on Rarible and they've given me Rari, right? You know, and, and maybe that's earning it. So that's an investment. Um, but I look to make more equity investments like traditional type investments, as opposed to looking as a token, as a traditional investment, it's not, unless it pays you a dividend of some sort. Um, and so there I'm investing in the minting side, right? Because I think, you know, simplifying minting and integrating the different, um, EIPs that come along, you've got to be able to do that. All these things that we're talking about with music start with minting, right? If the minting's not easy and it's not usable, and it doesn't um, carry over into as many marketplaces to get in front of as many user, users as possible. If that part doesn't work with minting, it doesn't work at all. I'm investing some in marketplaces. There's so many marketplaces popping up, but there's one, you know, um, Bitcoin Origin, right? I like those guys simply because they talk about the narrative, they create stories, right? So their marketplace isn't about just accumulating as many um, NFTs as they can but about working with artists that generate stories and generate narratives and that, cause that builds community, right? It, it, and having that community, as we said, is important. I'm working with Injective, right? So, you know, for, cause I like that their order book decentralized, meaning that they're using traditional market makers and bringing them over and you'll be able to trade in stocks and um, crypto and whatever else, right? Um, I haven't invested, but I, I work a lot with Ave, right? Because even though I, they need a lot of help with their user interface, that's where I got started and, and they're fair, they work, right? Um, what else have I done? Um, but I'm looking at those types of things where there's literally a, a business there and I'm investing in the business and the technology and the entrepreneurs and hoping that they're the survivors and the thrivers. Right. Um, and so that's what I look for right now. Crypto has always had this question of where is value going to accrue in crypto, right? We're, we're building this whole new economy. And, you know, Bitcoiners will tell you Bitcoin, it, you know, Bitcoin is the value accrual for this stuff. There's a store value. We're not building a whole new economy. Okay. Right? What we're doing is trying to make the existing economy more efficient and more productive. And, you know, if you're a business, more um, profitable. And if you're an individual, more usable. Right. It's not a new economy. It's any more than the Internet created the Internet economy. Right. We're still transaction. We just moved where we transacted. We saw that with the pandemic. You know, there's still people who preferred going to stores. And, you know, my wife used to love grocery shopping. Right. Not anymore. Right. So now, <laughs> you know, it's all Amazon all the time for me. Um, and so the economy is the same. We're just trying to make it better. Yeah, so this is this is moving across from from analog to digital. Maybe same economy in some respects. We're making it better, but like, tell us where value is going to accrue here because there's kind of two layers we're talking about. One is like the money layer, the store of value layer. We might put Bitcoin there. We might put Ether there. Although Ether also has some utility value, right? You have to use it to pay for transactions. Talk about that layer, and then let's talk about the layer up, which is the application layer, and where we've got all of these DeFi tokens. Where's value going to accrue here? So it really depends on what happens with 2.0, right? Because there's a lot of bets for and against. Um, the companies I work with, I try to make them blockchain agnostic, you know, because everybody's trying to do their best to come up with an alternative to Ether or to complement it um, at some level. But, it, you know, if you're creating your own blockchain, you've got to have an application that's already driving it. So it's just like flow with Top Shots. They've got an application that's driving it, and that's what's making it work. Um, and so I look for combinations there, right? Now, you know, 
right now you can't bet against Ether 2.0, you know, but I can see why a lot of people are trying to preempt it and trying to, you know, hype it in every way they can. You know, you see Binance doing what they're doing. You see Flow doing what they're doing. And, you know, it's different, but in their own way, they're trying to be the, the gravity that brings in users because um, that's the traffic and that's what's going to make their business work. On layer two, um, it's really just depends on the application. And what I look for are business world applications, not just crypto, uh, crypto world applications, but what changes how businesses do business. You know, smart contracts, that's why I'm learning Solidity so I can visualize okay, here's how you would program it. This is why it works. This is why it's better than what a company is doing right now for payroll, for human resources, for accounting. I mean, imagine accounting system. You would never have an Enron or a fraudulent accounting if you had, um, if you had and I'm going to get all these wrong, with proof of work, right? Distributed proof of work where you've got hundreds of, hundreds of accountants who decided to make their money staking or you know, confirming blocks for general ledger entries. And I know I'm getting the terminology wrong, I'm still learning it, but you know, you get my point, right? If I, if I have a whole group of accountants that are, uh, you know, are, are validators um, and they're confirming, look at look what happens in healthcare, right? This is the best example. So right now, if you go to your doctor and, and they say you need this or that, and then you go to your insurance company and you hope they don't deny it, right? Or, you know, and it's a battle or in the hospital itself, once you get it done, you hope they don't upcode it. So it costs you more. Um, well, if all that was done by independent validators who have been trained and are rewarded by doing a good job and confirm each other, right. For accuracy. Now, all of a sudden it's not just in a hospital and you, you, you eliminate fraud, right. And you humanize the whole process. And those are the types of things that I look for. So to me, like I mentioned earlier, the grand slams aren't the crypto community. Those are proof of concepts. And it's interesting and exciting and fun. You know, there's a lot of great things, but if you could change healthcare, because you have validators that have all been trained and they're all independent of each other across the country, across the world, whatever, right? And they're confirming whether or not a, um, um, a claim is payable or not you know, or whether it's accurate or not, or whatever it may be. And same for, you know, accounting applications. That's enormous, enormous. All the healthcare fraud and shit and pain and agony that people go through, you know, when you get sick and you just hope to God that you can pay for it and not go broke. And so when you talk for Medicare for all that, you know, you can argue whether that's right or wrong, but when you talk, you know, validating independent decentralized validation of claims, that's healthcare for all, right? That's sanity and reduced anxiety for all. And that's what I look for when I look at these things. And that's why when you look at this, you know, the Bitcoin, everything has a store of value. That's great. That's fun. That's exciting. It's an investment, you know, if, if you really understand it. The NFTs starting with music, that's great, right? Um, it can change industries there as well. Um, textbook, we talk music, etc. Just blockchain itself, and layer two, you know, all the way up to layer four applications applied to traditional business and making them fair, decentralized, and more efficient, which in turn leads to lower cost and more profitability, hopefully. And imagine, a, you know, a company built around blockchain 
that does have their own tokens or your partner you know, uses someone else's tokens even, and you're able to give to all your employees, not only shares of equity if you're a public company or even private, right? But also those tokens so that every one of your employees have an appreciable asset, hopefully appreciates, right? Because that's part of you know, income inequality. And that's part of the decentralized nature of crypto, right? If you can get you know, any, any coin token with algorithmic scarcity built into it and you get you know, one Satoshi into 330 million Americans' hands into a, you know, a wallet that's automatically set up at birth, and every time they, you know, they graduate from, from first grade, second grade, third grade, you know, they, they get, you know, they're fed, right? They get a Satoshi, right? And they're building up things for basic, you know, and, and it's, you know, even if it's one-tenth of a penny, you know, in valuation, and I'm not trying to do the math in my head, but whatever it is, right, you know, and they're just accruing this and accruing this and aren't allowed to sell it till they're 30 years old or whatever it may be or have to hold it for 10 years. Now you're, you're seeing how this decentralized nature and the fractionalized nature of this and the value of a USDC. So put aside Satoshi's just to say it's one, you know, of a, of a fiat equivalent, you know, um, stable coin, $1, and you're giving somebody a penny every time they do something right, but over from the day they're born, you know, and they're able to accumulate this, this asset that can appreciate. Um, that's huge. So, so Mark, there, this is a conversation that we also have on the, on the Bankless program quite a lot, which is where crypto, where blockchain, where Ethereum, and some of the biggest issues that we see in society intersect, right? And I, I know that you had a tweet that went pretty viral with the whole like GameStop debacle and comparing and contrasting it to DeFi. And one, one of the big things that I think that, you know, Ethereum can bring to the world are solutions that are helping, uh, that, are, that can help mitigate some of the, the social unrest, the, the wealth inequality in this world, right? Like we saw like the deplatforming of people that were wanting to trade on, on GameStop, right? Uh, or wanting to trade on Robinhood, excuse me. Uh, and, and there's a, 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 exactly what you were talking about, these broader conversations of wealth inequality where in the legacy financial system, the non-crypto financial system, there's very well-capitalized entrenched players. And like the, the younger millennials, the, the, the Zoomers, there's this sense of like kind of despair that like climbing the ladder and making a name for yourself is just like too hard in this calcified system. And like one of the value propositions of DeFi and Ethereum is like, there is no ladder. Like everything is so new, it's so flat, it's easy to climb that ladder. And, and one of the narratives that we're trying to, to harp on is that like this new world is unsaturated and young entrepreneurs can do something cool in this world and it can help solve some of the biggest social issues of the day. How do you think about this? I agree. I mean, it's like the early days of the internet again, the early days of the PC industry, right? It, it you know, there were the tech dinosaurs, you know, that never believed, oh, I'll never use a PC. Who the hell needs that? I got Betty and Susie and Sam over there. They, they do my PC work. They're going to die eventually, right? But it was opportunity when I was your age, right? And when everybody else was shitting on it, I was like, fuck y'all. This, this is going to change everything, right? And I'm going to connect these things together. Um, and then it was the internet. It was the same thing for we're super young millennials back then, right? It was like, okay, let's go, right? You know, this is changing everything. And crypto is the same thing. But the underpinning, and I'll keep on repeating this, the underpinning of it is there's got to be value created from the applications. And there are. And that's why I'm excited. Because I can see, you know, and I mentioned some of them, just like I saw with PCs 
and software. And that's why I taught myself how to program and local area and wide area networks and then mobile and then high dev. Um, and now with crypto and teaching myself and AI for that matter, don't want to leave that out, right? Um, AI is also a world changer and now crypto, right? So each of them has, has had their own dramatic impact on applications and business, right? And people's lives. And in hindsight, it's really easy and it makes perfect sense. Of course, you're going to stream. Of course, you're going to use a PC or a phone. Who the fuck would, would think otherwise? Well, back when it's happening, everybody doubts it. Every single idea that I've ever had that's made me big fucking money, everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody. And if you don't think I'm crazy when I come up with it, then it's not the right idea. Because there's, you know, and that's the same thing with this. You know, people don't know what the blockchains are. They don't know what smart contracts are. They don't know about layer one through three, four, right? They, they, you know, it's all foreign to them. So they're not going to understand it. But if you or I or any kid out there um, can see that application and figure out and then do it and then implement it, bam, right? It's like there were plenty of search engines before Google. You know, so Mark, at, at this stage, like, how do you, I want to know how you explain it to people. So you got, you got somebody who sees your tweets, you know, a friend of yours, maybe knows you're into crypto, knows like you, you're into tech, you got in on the internet. How do you explain it to the, to the average person on the street? What's going on? Don't, right. I don't try. Um, you know, tr so trying to get into DeFi right now, it's too early. It's just like, you know, when we were starting streaming, I didn't try to explain streaming. I just said, do you want to listen to the Cubs game while you're in the office? And then we did research that said, you know, the PC was the dominant media device on 97% of corporate desktops. And only 3% of them had radios or TVs. So we were the only way for someone sitting at their desk in the office to be able to listen and then watch something. I'm like, do you get that? You know? And so what you do is you think of a basic application. How would you like to borrow money so you cover your overdrafts in 10 seconds or 20, 30 seconds or less and not need permission from anybody. How am I going to do that? Well, you got to have more than you're borrowing. That's the first problem, you know, for right now, you're going to be over collateralized. But if you're able to save that money, right, and you just don't want to, you want to leave it in your bank account and you want to borrow it to pay a bill, knowing you're going to get paid next week, great. You got to save up that first you know, tranche to be over collateralized. But after that, you never have to talk to a bank again. Does that work? Well, I can't really save the money, but if I could, it would. But th then slowly but surely, hopefully in your yes. life, you're able to save some of that money, right? Um, and then you start seeing. And so it's the application. I don't try to explain the crypto. I try to explain the value. And when people start seeing the value, then it works. That is such a good point that like, I think people who are deep in crypto, maybe sometimes the listeners on our show, maybe ourselves, David, yeah. that we sometimes miss is we, oh, you want to learn about blockchain? Let me tell you about how blockchain works. But really it's like, they don't want, they want problems solved. How do I'm making like close to 0% in my Wells Fargo bank account. How can I make 5% right in a relatively risk-free way? That's a, that's a problem you solve. I, I just got disconnected from uh, Robinhood because they stopped me from trading GameStop. Well, there's a synthetics version of the S&P 500 and stocks on Ethereum that they can't shut down. Yeah, That's what you're talking about. That, right, right. So like injective, why do I invest in injective, right? So one, 
the whole stop out, right, because of the capital requirements. Robinhood didn't do it on purpose to hurt, on purpose to hurt them. They just didn't have enough equity, right? They didn't have enough capital, um, and so they had no choice. They would have gone bankrupt because they had, they had too many customers. But doing it in a decentralized manner, but because it's transparent, that's the thing. Because it's all in the blockchain, every investor gets to see exactly how much Injective has of all of this, right? There's no, you know, it's not, it's all decentralized, so there's no hiding it at all. And so that creates one opportunity. But the, the second part of that is the governance aspect of it. You know, if you created a, a Wall Street bets governance token and everybody got to vote every hour, right, or assign somebody which stocks they're going to buy or sell, or for each stock that they own, have a governance of whether they hold it or sell it, and it's voted on every minute, hour, or whatever they set, that's Wall Street bets and it's going to work. It's so crazy because what we're talking about is all, all we're talking about is adding a, a capital coordination layer to the community that's that's already happening, Wall Street Bets community. It's just giving them an outlet. Yeah, that's the application. That's the way I think. What are the app? That's the program or business programmer side of me that when I was first getting started, here's what you're doing manually. Here's how I'm going to automate it. How do what's what's the logic to get me from point A to point B? This is no different. Here are the applications. That's why I'm, I'm trying to learn Solidity. That's why I'm learning as much as I can about blockchain and um, smart contracts, because that allows me to visualize how I get from how they're doing business today to where they should be using these new tools and whether or not it can be done. Same with AI. It's one thing to talk about it. Look, my investment thesis, you didn't ask me on, on traditional stocks, is who does AI the best? <laughs> if, you look at the, if you look at the biggest market cap companies, without fail. They are the ones that have been doing AI the longest and do it the best. And they continue to take market share from people and make more money at times when their competitors are not because they're that good at AI. And the same thing will apply to crypto and companies as well. The companies that are best able to, to apply um, blockchain and, and smart contract technology and whatever else comes along the layer on top of that will be the ones that will have the biggest market caps and the most profits because they'll be more efficient and will have happier customers. That's the way I look at it. Mark, I want to ask your perception about, about narratives because the crypto world is, runs on narratives. Everything is a narrative. Like we can talk about the fundamentals of certain DeFi tokens, but I will promise you that that won't be the reason why that token goes up or down in price. It's because of, of narrative. Of course. It sounds like you want you already know where to go. Um, yeah. A, a, a comment that I heard you uh, talk on on a different podcast was something along the lines of like you you slapped like a, a baseball card down on the table and then there was yeah. some stock and you were saying which one's going to go up more? I don't know. And so so talk about that because like the the legacy a, a big criticism from the crypto space to the legacy stock market is that we think it's based on fundamentals, but it's actually based on narratives. Like talk about that and, and talk about yeah, how I mean, crypto is different. I wrote about that shit 15 years ago, right? So if you go to blogmaverick.com and put in the word stock, you know, for a search term, you'll see the stuff I wrote. You know, what is buy and hold? Buy and hold is just a narrative from, you know, stockbrokers so that you hold on to your stocks, right? And you know, think about Wolf of Wall Street and all the shit that, you know, when they were pitching these shitty ass stocks. It was all narrative, right? Creating the story. And, and you know, they would, they would talk about, got to create the story. You got to let them see that wealth in their mind and, and all this. And, you know, price earnings ratio. What does that really mean? Look at Apple, right? For the longest time, Apple was considered a cyclical stock, which meant it traded in the 10 to 15 price earnings ratio um, range. Then all of a sudden, everybody decided it was a growth stock. 
And so now it can trade as a multiple of everything else, right? It's all narrative. My broker taught me the, so when I first sold my first company when I was 29, 30 years old, and I made a few million dollars, and I told him I wanted him to invest like I'm 60 years old, right? Because this, I wanted this to last me a long time because I just wanted to party like a rock star. But a lifetime pass in American Airlines, just went out to get party with as many people as I could. Um, and he told me something, he goes, look, he goes, you have a platform, you know, back then it was much smaller, but you have a little platform. And the thing that makes stocks move is when you get long a stock, you get loud the stock. And I learned it. And it's the same thing. When you buy a token, get long, get loud. And that's what people do. You see um, CZ at Binance. He's, he's a superstar at that, right? He knows how to play that game. You saw Tron, um, you know, talking, you know, paying people to pump up their, their, um, their tokens. And you're seeing in other places as well. People don't know anything. And because perception is reality when it comes to valuation. Why, why is the stock market where it's at? The stock market has been down the last five or six days. What really changed? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. You know, maybe interest rates went up a tiny bit. Maybe there's some fear. And you watch CNBC and they get people coming on all the time. And I remember going on CNBC, you know, a while back. And it was fun because I would tell um, people, yeah, I'm going to talk about this stock. I don't own it, but I'm going to talk about it because you own it. And you'd see the stock of B, 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 It's no different. It is absolutely no different whatsoever. So now it's just streaming shows like this, where if I say, you know, I'm buying this token, chances are the price is going to go up. So what are you buying, Mark? I told you, actually, what, yeah, I'm not, what am I buying? What did I last buy? No, I'm not going to do it. I was like, no, no way is he actually about to say that. No way. But actually, one of my wallets, one of my wallets is public. I got a bunch of them. Um, mm -hmm. One of my wallets is public um, because of the minting I did on um, um, the NFTs. And did so you know that you were going to make that wallet public when you did that? No, I did not. I did not. <laughs> That's really yeah. funny. So, so I want to take to put this into a takeaway lesson for any of the listeners here. So, for for the for anyone who's new to DeFi, anyone who's listening in the stream, like do know that like DeFi and Ethereum and crypto and basically that run, runs on narratives. So, uh, so Mark, you you've been on both sides. You've been on the legacy world, the legacy finance, and now you're playing in the in the crypto world. Understanding that everything runs on narratives, what should new players understand? Like, how, what are the lessons that, that we can teach them right here on this live stream? I, that I tell everybody about a stock, do your homework, mm. right? No one sells you a token thinking the price is going to go up. Everybody sells, unless they just need the money, right? Or for some other external reason, like, because particularly in crypto, because you mm -hmm. could borrow against it. Now, maybe they're selling it because they got called in a margin or whatever, because the stock, the, the price is going down. But you got to do your homework. You got to do your homework. You got to know why you're buying it. Because if you don't know why you're buying it, you don't know why you'll sell it. Right. So if I buy a stock, I'll hold it. And I learned this expensively. Right. Because I used to try to time the market. I used to think, oh, I've got a great feel for the market. You know, um, no. But what I learned and what's paid me a lot of money since is why am I learn why I'm buying a stock and, and until that changes, just hold on to the stock. And if it falls back and it still stayed the same, buy more. So if it's injective and you know they're they're not live, they're still on test net. So you know, it's all just fun and games right now. But if I like what they're doing, right, and they keep on progressing the way I like it, if it falls, I'll buy more. 
you know, and if something changes where they set a goal, they're going to do A, B, or C, and they weren't able to do it, or they were only able to do A and B, and they failed miserably at C, then I'll sell. So if you're new into this, whether it's NFTs, whether it's tokens, whatever it is, know why you're buying. And if you're just buying because somebody on Twitter told you, like Dogecoin, Dogecoin, like I tell my <laughs> <laughs> you know, literally like my 11 year old son I, I have an account I set up for him um, my account for him on um, Robinhood and my daughter as well my 14 year old daughter my 14 year old daughter doesn't get as fired up as he does and um, I'm like why are you buying this doggy coin he goes because um, it's Doja coin I'm like I know but it's still a doggy you know and let me just say buy Doja coin all you want if you know it's fun and it's like a lottery ticket right and you're just playing a game Otherwise, think twice. And I said to him, you know, why, why are you even interested? How did you even hear about this? TikTok, right? So there's all kinds of people blasting shit out on TikTok that kids are getting into. And, you know, it's just the whole get long, get loud principle. And you've got to ask yourself, why are you buying this? What do you understand about this company and what they're doing? You know, um, so when you see BMB or Matic or, you know, who else is layer one? Near or Solana, is that right, Solana? Um, so, you know, the the layer one guys, the blockchain guys, that you read their white papers, they're all great stories, or flow for that matter, right? They're all great stories. No one puts out shitty white papers for the most part, right? But at least, you know, be very critical of them and understand and know why you're doing it. So in the event they don't deliver, that's when you sell. And so that's what you really have got to do if you're getting involved in this. If you're just winging it, then that's fine. Like in stock, stocks, you know, they have technical pe people who buy based off of technicals, right? They just buy or sell based off of what the charts tell them. That's okay too, you know, and you're seeing more and more of that. And I think if anything, that's probably one of the biggest problems crypto has is that it's not a truly efficient marketplace. And you're getting more and more quantitative sellers, I mean, um, traders involved trying to arb all the variances um, across the board in, in real time and their own version of high frequency trading. And that in one respect, it helps balance the market. But in another respect, there's a lot of front running going on. There's a lot of people that, you know, are getting, you know, getting ahead of retail investors. So you, you've got, you've got to be careful. Um, this is not like buying or selling stock just because it's not regulated. Good advice, Mark. That's great. Okay, so I, I said this in the intro. It feels like you have uh, fallen down the crypto DeFi rabbit hole in a big way. I feel that even more so at the end of this conversation. So my question to you is, what are you going to do next, man? Is is crypto going to be like one of the areas you play in for the next like five to ten years? What what do well, you no, do? It's really what I talked about. How can you disrupt? So the way I look at it, how can I use blockchain in particular, and smart chains in particular? and come up with applications that just disrupt shit. You know, I, we talked, you know, I mentioned medical, you know, insurance, um, textbooks. Um, we talked about music, but everybody's looking at music, right? Um, you know, there's business applications, exact same. You know, back in the day when I was first getting started with PCs, how can I fuck things up, right? How can I change the way a company does business? Then I got to local area networks. How can it change? Winery networks, how can it change? And along the way, I taught myself how to program because that was the only way these applications are going to get done. I wrote the first um, purchase order system that integrated with Walmart, you know, back in the day. You know, I wrote an application that took pictures of jewelry at Zales so that they didn't have to store it 
physical watches and everything in the vaults for buyers to go look to make sure it's the same way. How do you change those games, right? And then same with streaming. You know, even though we did, you know, you can watch the Cubs game in, or listen to the Cubs games in the office. We did that as proof of concept. Back then, in order to have an all-hands meeting for a company that was in multiple cities, they would literally rent satellite time and go to theaters during the day when they were empty and send their employees there and beam it down. And that's how they would have all-hands meetings. And we made most of our money doing corporate applications like that. We called it our business services. That's the exact same thing I'm looking to do here. How do you take things that are done in a non-blockchain, um, smart chain world, a smart contract world, um, and apply it to the way things have always been done and say, how do you disrupt it? How do you change the game so that the world is just a different place? Hey, David, you're muted, buddy. Muted it. Oh, there we go. Mark, I want to present a scenario to you, which I think is going to happen in, in the future, right? So you're on Shark Tank, like do, doing your thing. And Shark Tank Friday nights on ABC? That yeah, that, that's, the one, that's the one. That's the one I mean. Um, and so then someone comes in and pitches you, and it's something Bitcoin, Ethereum, DeFi related. And, it's, and I'm assuming this hasn't happened yet. What gets you out of your seat? What gets the checkbook and out and like gets that check signed right then and there? But they know their shit, right? They got to know what they're talking about because I don't want buzzword, you know, you know, promotions or buzzword pitches. That that is of no value to me whatsoever. It's just like AI. People will mention AI or they'll know that I like sensor-based applications, right? So they'll mention sensors, and then I'm going to quiz them: Is it off the shelf or is it something you created? You know, um, who you know for AI? Are you using open source libraries? Or is this something unique? Is this a unique data set? How are you creating your data? How are you scaling it? Yada, yada. Cost. People don't realize how expensive AI is. Same with blockchain. It's not so much that it's expensive, but you know, who are you competing with? Why are you better? What's unique? What's differentiated? Um, what's you know, what's going to make people want to do business with you? Or what impact are you going to have on the business world that allows businesses to become more profitable, productive, and competitive and you know, change the game. Mark, you got any predictions for us as we close out for uh, 2021? What's in store here, man, for, I guess, you know, let's talk crypto, DeFi, NFTs, anything you want to throw out and then, you know, maybe more broadly. First of all, Shark Tank's going to be a great show this season. Second, <laughs> Mavs play tonight. So that's all I'm thinking about. Third, um, you know, it, it's going to be business driven. As much as, you know, it's like, again, like the early days of the internet where people who are passionate about the net, you know, I would go on to CompuServe, long gone, right? Prodigy, long gone. AOL, the old walled garden AOL, long gone. And have these conversations about the internet and how they're going to screw up, you know, those businesses, right? The chat rooms. Um, and, the, but the people there were really passionate. And then you get on UUNet and the people there were really passionate about the internet and those chat forums. Um, and so now it's the early adopters that are really excited about it. There's ways to make money. There's better places for individuals to earn some yield as long as they're careful and, and know what they're getting into, right? So that's all good, but that's kind of just basic stuff. The big money, you know, and so we're talking about trillion dollar Bitcoin Amazon's worth one point whatever. Apple's worth one point ever. That's just a singular company, you know. Um, and I think gold. I mean, I think Bitcoin's going to take away from gold. But macro basis, 
you know, there's still a game being trade played for NVL and market cap valuation for tokens. So what, you know, that, you know, that's just ego more than anything else. The market cap of a token really doesn't mean anything. The NVL of a site, it's a great metric. I mean, I guess it's the best metric we can come up with so far, but it really doesn't mean anything. What does it really mean? There's definitely a lot of, you know, vanity type stuff going on. As you talked about earlier, there's there's ways to sort of, uh, you know, hack those metrics and bend it in, in any area. This is definitely going to be a proving time for crypto, I think, in a big way. Um, it also... Application. The way you'll know, you put aside what Tesla did and talking about the valuation of Bitcoin, the proving ground for crypto is in the applications where you see companies all of a sudden using blockchain and using crypto in a unique way to disrupt incumbents. That's when the game changes. So when you see some Zoomer come in that's you know 20 years old and came up with a new payroll system that disrupts all the SaaS and all the, you know, the new payroll programs that are out there, right? When you see one coming up that displaces Twilio, right? You know, that displaces Plaid, right? Plaid should be, you know, first in line for, to be disrupted, right? They're a great company, but it, you know, they're, what they do basically is arbitrage the hassle factor for traditional finance. And so when you see people coming up with applications that just totally mess them up, that's when you know it's here to stay and it's going to grow. That's really the key to the future of crypto. And if I'm wrong and those applications don't exist, then it'll just be a sideline and it'll be a store of value and that's it. And there'll be some specialty applications. Well said, sir. Yeah. And we on the Bankless program think that the banking and finance layer will want, be one of those first layers to be disrupted. Uh, Once you make it easy, right now it's too hard to deal with a wallet and understand it. You know, it's too hard to yield farm for most people. It's hard to understand the, the macro basis. Maybe you can make some money off of it. I bet half the people that do yield farming are losing money. You're, you know, if the whole thing in this is decentralization so that anybody can make some money from it between transaction fees, even if you're on some other blockchain, right? You know, it's hard to, to really, because you don't only have the risk, you have the slippage, you have, you know, beyond, that's just on the time of the transaction, you have the movement of the token, the volatility of it all. And so unless you time it right, you know, it's hard. And so I would bet half the people and, and are losing money on yield farming, the small people, right? And the big ones, you know, they get to call their own game because they create the liquidity that, that's needed. And so it's not the, the, the fairness that people want it to be today, right? But as these applications get easier to use and the, the tutorials are better and the friction is reduced significantly, then you're right. Like I said, you know, owning any, you know, Ethereum or Bitcoin in particular is like owning your own private bank. You just have, but the hard part is figuring out where to deposit it and how. And once that is simplified so that, you know, you know, the, the thought that you have to get it from your bank account is dismissive in the first place, right? To get it from fiat to Bitcoin, that's got to be easier. Um, but once it is, and I'm getting paid in USDC and it goes right into my wallet slash bank account. 
and I convert it to whatever I want to, whether it's algorithmically or I get to choose. And now I'm, you know, I'm incented to save, right? Because of the, the collateral basis, right? So I'm incented to save because now I can pay my bills from there. I can borrow from there. And it all happens simply and at the lowest cost ever. And so when those things start to happen, that's when the game really changes. That's a message to the builders. There is lots to build out in this space. And I yep, think Mark Cuban, yep. he wants to hear from you. If you've got some good ideas, I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Yep. Uh, guys, as we say so often, this is the frontier. It's not for everyone. It's risky out there in DeFi world, but we're glad you're with us. Uh, we want to do a last shout out to Gemini, Ave, Monolith, and Dharma. These are the sponsors that made this show possible. We want to also thank Mark Cuban. Dude, it is awesome to have you on the Bankless journey with us. <laughs> like, we need advocates and supporters who understand this stuff, who have used MetaMask and deposited into DeFi protocols to help spread the word. And it's awesome that you're you're doing this here. So we appreciate, well, I appreciate it. you guys having me on. It, it was enjoyable, and I always learn something from this. And so that's what's important to me. Thanks, Mark. Let's do it again sometime.